For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. You're here because you are continuing your education about cannabis medicine, and you know that this podcast is the best place to go to hear from experts in the field. And if you haven't noticed, this is the first episode of 2021 that I have released. It's been a couple months since a new episode has come out. I'm sure, like many of you, 2020 was a very difficult year. The end of it was very challenging for me and my family. I lost both of my grandmothers. I lost a dear friend from graduate school. It, uh, it ended hard, but 2021 looks promising. Things are looking up, I would say. And for this first episode of this year, I am bringing you Dr. Matthew Mintz. Dr. Mintz was a pleasure to speak to. He has taken a really beautiful and unique philosophy of treating his patients as humans. He has this concierge service that he provides where he gets to have a very personal relationship with each and every one of his patients, and he incorporates cannabis medicine into that relationship. Not all of his patients are cannabis patients, but he does offer it as a possibility for anyone that wants it and helps them with their journey. We had a beautiful conversation and as always, I'm sure you will get a lot out of it. So please head over to Stitcher or Apple or wherever it is that you are consuming this podcast and give me a rating. Let me know what you think of the show. Let me know how much you've learned in the past. If there are any at all kind of guests that you'd like to hear, reach out to me. Tell me what's going on. Matthew at edgeofcannabismedicine.com is how you can reach me. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Dr. Mintz. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. And today's guest is Dr. Matthew Mintz. Dr. Mintz is an internal medicine and primary care physician in practice for over 23 years and sees patients in his Bethesda, Maryland office. He is an associate clinical professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine and frequently named as a top doctor by Washingtonian Magazine. Dr. Mintz has certified over 1,000 patients from Maryland and the District of Columbia for medical cannabis and is the author of the book, Medical Marijuana and CBD, A Physician's Guide for Patients. Dr. Mintz, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time today. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Of course, of course. Well, let's dive right in. I would love to know how you got into medical cannabis in the first place. Uh, that's a great question. So as uh, so, I, uh, I'm still on the faculty at George Washington University, uh, but for the first part, 20 years of my career, essentially, I was on the faculty full time. I worked at the at the medical school. And I did a combination of uh, uh, seeing patients, a little bit of research, a lot of teaching, what a lot of academic doctors do. Um, and cannabis was not really even on my radar. Uh, the District of Columbia had legalized medical cannabis while I was there, uh, but the logistics of getting patients and the, you know to get it and dispensaries up was going to take years. So, you know, I was aware that medical cannabis was something, but it was very far removed from what I was thinking about. Uh, after about 20 years at the uh, at the medical center, I decided uh, for a variety of reasons, commute being one of them, uh, that I needed to work a little closer to my home. So uh, Maryland, D.C. traffic is probably 
possibly worse than California. Uh, it is definitely up there in the worst traffic. And so, you know, to get from my home to an office on the weekend is only like 25 minutes, but like an hour and a half commute each way. It was just too much for 20 years. So I opened up my own practice about three and a half years ago. And as you can imagine, starting a practice, things are a little bit slow. So I was not that busy to begin with. Um, and a couple months after I opened my practice, uh, a Maryland a medical marijuana dispensary moved into my medical building. So the dispensaries, at least in Maryland, are various different places. Some are standalone, some are strip malls, but this particular one decided that they wanted to be in a medical building. And I was very interested. So I went, I met with the owners before the dispensary even opened, and they were telling me a little bit about medical marijuana in Maryland. And you know, one of the things they said, they said there were very few, you know, providers that were signed up to certify patients for medical cannabis. So thinking that, you know, I wasn't really busy. I was, you know, paying for staff, paying rent. I wasn't that busy at the time. And these people were right downstairs if they wanted to send up a few people to get certified. You know, what was the harm in doing that? Um, and I'll be honest, you know, I was, I was a little bit skeptical. I was really worried that people would be coming to see me really, you know, to, for a, an excuse to get, you know, pot legally. Um, so I'll be honest, I was a little bit skeptical at first, but pretty much immediately, like after the first patients or two that I saw, I realized that, that these people were really sick. And I think one of the things that was unique, that's unique about the Washington DC area is that uh, DC is legal for both medical cannabis and recreational cannabis, where in Maryland, it's only for medical. So people who just really want to get pot, they go down to DC because it's legal, it's easier, it's cheaper. So the people who want medical cannabis in Maryland, at least out in the deep Maryland suburbs, you know, that's close to DC, they're really sick. And so I saw the first few patients I saw, like one of the first patients I saw was like stage four metastatic cancer in a lot of discomfort, severe pain on narcotics, nausea from chemotherapy, like really, really sick. And, you know, as a doctor, that's what we like to do. We like to make people feel better. And so pretty quickly, I found out, no, people weren't coming here to get a legal excuse for pot. They were here because they needed medicine, either because their medicine wasn't working or they had side effects. And then eventually, after certifying a few patients, I realized how well this stuff worked, um, often even better than allopathic treatments. And so I decided, you know, this is something that I'm going to do. This is something that's really interesting. And so if I'm going to do this, you know, I can't just, I don't want to just do the certification. Like I want to learn about this. If I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to do certifications, I need to learn about this. And one of the things that I found out, I found it was very difficult to find information, legitimate medical information about medical cannabis, primarily because of the federal restrictions, because uh, marijuana is federally illegal. Uh, you can't, uh, we don't have the research that we, that usually gets published in medical journals. My office is about a mile and a half north of the NIH. And um, NIH would be perfect to do cannabis research, but it's a federal institution. So they can't touch this stuff. And even George Washington University, where I was faculty, they're a private institution. Uh, most of the funding they get is from NIH and other government sources, and they don't want to risk losing that federal funding dealing with cannabis. So we don't have the research that we, we need. Uh, that being said, there is research out there. It's just not that easy to find or easy to interpret. And so I really had to you know, do take a lot of work uh, to find out and learn about this. Uh, I took a couple of courses. One of the courses, uh, one of the major sites for courses is required in the state of New York. The state of New York requires their medical providers to have six hours of what's called continuing medical education. And so while I, what Maryland didn't require that, I at least it found one reputable source to get the medical information. So I took that class, I took a few others, started doing my own research, and then eventually over time, you know, had experienced my own experience, um, you know, with regimens that worked or didn't work for various patients. And just it was, was so challenging to find that information for myself as a clinician, it's equally, I found it equally challenging for patients to find medical information. You know, you, know, you can Google anything, you can find a YouTube video for anything, it's crazy. But medical cannabis seems to be different. Like if you Google, if you have a condition, let's say medical cannabis for anxiety, like you can, if you Google medical cannabis or medical marijuana or marijuana for anxiety, you'll find a ton of stuff to say that it works. 
and you'll find a ton of sites that say, here are the top strains. And of course, those sites will all be different. The 10 sites will list five different top strains. But, but there's nothing that I was able to find for patients to go to that says, if, this, if, you, have met, if you have anxiety and you want to use medical cannabis, here's what you do and how to do it. Like that just wasn't there anywhere. Even in the published medical literature, the medical literature was more randomized trials, not with the gistus of do you use edibles, do you use tinctures, do you use vape, like what do you do? And so that's basically why I ended up writing this book is because I started out like trying to, I started out doing these handouts for patients because I found it was so difficult to find the information. I didn't have time to go through in detail. So I would give them regimens and I would say, here, take this handout. And eventually after a number of handouts, I'm like, I might as well just publish a book. So that's why I ended up, you know, publishing a book. So I didn't, this was not something I expected. I had a great career, 20 year career in academic medicine, decided it was time to start my own little private practice close to where I live. I sort of stumbled onto this cannabis thing and it's been wonderful. It's been great. So, uh, so I, you know, be trying, I really try to become a local expert here in medical cannabis and, and decided uh, even to write a book for patients. So I think that's fantastic. And it's so important that the patients have access to this information. And also, like you said, the physicians and clinicians, a lot of them just don't know. 85% didn't get any kind of education around this whatsoever. And the few that do, they only have to do what, six hours in a state that that requires it. As far as I understand, Maryland, all you have to do is prove that you're a licensed physician or clinician. Maryland and Maryland NDC, and I expect that New York is probably the exception rather than the rule. Um, because it's, because, and that's the other thing too that's interesting. Essentially, what I'm doing as a certifying provider, ultimately, my job is to ensure that the patient meets the state's criteria for medical cannabis which is not that hard to do. So if PTSD is a qualifying condition, okay, uh, and it is a qualifying condition in most states, my job is to determine whether that patient has PTSD or not. And I can look at, you know, patient's medical records, and if they see the psychiatrist that says they have PTSD, it's a pretty quick and simple thing. And in fact, at least in our area, in the D.C., Maryland, Maryland and soon Virginia area, you know, most certifying providers are not physicians. They really are just looking at paperwork. That's sort of all they do. They don't really talk to patients about sort of how to take this as a medicine. That was the other reason what I found. So initially I would just certify patients and I would tell them, you know, go to the dispensary and, you know, the, the, the folks at the dispensary, essentially the bud tenders will tell you what to take. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, at least in Maryland, um, uh, you know, they did not reinvent the wheel. A lot of these companies hired people who had been in California, in Colorado, doing this for a long period of time. And so some of the bud tenders are extremely knowledgeable. In fact, one of the ways I develop some of the regimens that I give from patients is talking to some of these experienced bud tenders to find out sort of in their experience, because they had seen more cannabis patients than me, what worked, what didn't. And so I gleaned a lot of knowledge from these bud tenders. Um, but while that's good and helpful, number one, you don't know who you're going to get when you go to a dispensary. Are you going to get that seasoned bud tender who's been doing this for 10 years or someone who just signed up? They were working at the Gap two weeks ago and thought this would be like a cool job. You know? And while there are you know, very experienced bud tenders, they're not clinicians. There's no certification. So it would be the analogy that I use is like, you know, if I have someone with di that I diagnose with diabetes, I wouldn't send them to CVS and say, well, just go ask the pharmacist what to take. And the pharmacist has a PhD in pharmacology, you know, whereas the, there's no certification for the blood tenders. So I think that they're very valuable and, and the good ones can be very, very helpful. But I think it's important that clinicians who have that clinical background be knowledgeable about these various products, how they work, how they work for specific patients, especially patients who are also going to be taking allopathic medicines, so how it all interacts. So I really do think it's important for clinicians to be knowledgeable, get up to date, so they can really make those recommendations uh, to those patients. And at least in our area, which is relatively new to medical cannabis, Maryland and, and D.C. have only been you know, up and running for a couple of years, there's not too many people that do that. Uh, that most of the certifying providers just literally give them the paperwork. So that was the other reason that I thought it was important to sort of figure out what my patients should be. 
Yeah, and I think that's wonderful. And something that I was reading about you is that you actually incorporate this into your primary care practice, which is very unique among physicians. Like you said, so many just bring in patients and say, okay, you have this condition, you are now certified, or I recommend, or whatever it might be in your state. And that's about it. That's the end of the conversation. Then to bring it into your actual practice is very unique. Yeah. So most, I would say at least for the physicians of the, I don't know, couple hundred physicians that are registered to certify patients for medical cannabis, the vast majority of them don't really advertise that. They're busy doctors. They already have too many patients. They don't want new patients coming them to seek, you know, certifications for medical cannabis. So if you're lucky enough to have, like if your regular doctor happens to be certified, that's great. You can have them certify you. But for most patients, their doctor is not registered to certify. They don't want to do it. In fact, a lot of my referrals come from my physician colleagues. They're like, I have a patient who may benefit from medical cannabis. I don't know about it. I don't want, I'm not registered to certify patients. I don't want to do that but I'll send them to Dr. Mintz because I know at least he knows what he's doing. So I get a lot of referrals from clinicians actually who know enough to know there might be value, but they don't want to touch this stuff. So most of the certifying providers are really in, that's all they do. They just do sort of cannabis certifications and that's it. And, and again, and many of the certifying providers, at least in our area, are not even physicians. They're dentists, they're podiatrists. In the state of Maryland, you can be a dentist, a podiatrist, a nurse practitioner, or a physician. And so it's, 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 it's very much a churn and burn type of thing in general. Very interesting. I'm a dentist, huh? That's <laughs> I, I think the rationale, you say, well, why a dentist? I think the rationale, again, I wasn't part of the legislative process, is both podiatrists and dentists can prescribe medicines, including pain medicines. And because mm-hmm. cannabis is good for pain, and hopefully some people were thinking in terms of we have an opioid epidemic and cannabis may help with that. I think it, it's in terms of they write pain prescriptions, so they might be a good certifying provider. I, that's what I that's what I think the thinking was, and I wasn't there at the time of the decision, but that that's what makes it make sense to me. Yeah, it does make some sense, I guess. Uh, but to have something where being able to see a clinician as yourself, and I was digging in a little bit into your site and seeing what you offer there, and this concierge service really struck me, and it seems like a really beautiful way to incorporate the old school ways of being a doctor and being there for your patient, not just the, like you said, the churn and burn kind of thing where you sit and you wait for an hour to see your doctor. He comes in for 10 minutes and then he's gone. You don't even have a conversation. It seems that this type of model really lends itself towards medical cannabis and being able to help patients with it. Well, I think, yeah, it's interesting. I think it lends itself to being able to help patients of which medical cannabis is just one way. I mean, the problem is, is that our, I mean, our healthcare system is a mess and it's primarily due to our insurance system and how reimbursements work. And so uh, our, our system reimburses very well for procedures like surgeries and things like that or diagnostics. So x-rays and CT scans and MRIs and things of that nature. Uh, it does not reimburse very well for what I call cognitive services. Um, so we're not doing those things. So, you know, people like primary care physicians like myself or pediatricians, family medicine doctors, psychiatrists, for example, who don't do any procedures, they just talk to people. Insurance pays very low for that. And so, you know, if you are a primary care physician or a pediatrician and your reimbursement rate is very, very low, the only way that you can sort of make and meet and make ends meet, you know, pay your staff, pay the bills is by volume. So you have to see more and more patients. And that's why your typical primary care patient provider has about 2,000, 3,000 patients at a given time and sees like 25 patients a day. And so when you're that volume based, you know, you can't really give time. You're not there to answer questions. You're not there to explain whether it's cannabis or just the high blood pressure medicine. You don't have time to talk about diet and exercise and how to take your medicine. It's quick, 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 quick. And so it's very typical that it takes, you know, three months to get an appointment with the doctor and you're sitting in the waiting room for 45 minutes. You see the doctor for 10 minutes and half the time the doctor is, you know, looking at their computer screen. That happens. Our healthcare system is like that because of the low reimbursement for insurance. And it's a shame, but that's sort of the way it is. So several of us, many in primary care have basically said, we're just not going to do this. We're not going to take insurance anymore. And so some doctors just charge a, a fee for service and, and the patient can reimburse their insurance. 
What I do is it's a membership practice. Some people call it concierge, uh, where patients pay an annual fee. They can pay annually, quarterly, or monthly. And that allows me not to have 2,000 or 3,000 patients, but just a couple hundred patients. And I can be there for those hundred patients, whenever, a couple hundred patients, whenever they need me. We can have longer appointments. We have same-day appointments, next-day appointments, 24-7 phone access. So it really allows patients to access me. We have plenty of time to answer questions. And so that allows for those conversations, whether it be about cannabis or diet, exercise, nutrition, any sort of, you know, obviously during the pandemic now, I'm getting tons of questions about COVID and what should I do? So I get calls all the time from patients and I have the time to do that. I can actually answer their question when they need it as opposed to, you know, waiting three weeks to get a response or not getting a response at all. That's so, so great. It's a good model in general and it works really well for cannabis as well. It does. It's so important because it's an evolving conversation because, you know, ways of administration changes. And like you said, the strains, who knows? And what do you have any kind of dialogue with these specific bud tenders or the dispensaries themselves to know what's going on with your patients or help them with their recommendations? That's That's a tricky one because, you know, there's a lot that still hasn't been worked out. And one is patient privacy. So, you know, it's, it's the, the, even though I'm a certifying provider and I've referred the patient to, you know, the patient, you know, they have their own privacy as well. So I might make some recommendations, but the, 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 the dispensary is not necessarily at liberty to tell me what the patient's doing. It's a little bit different than, you know, if I would refer someone to a gastroenterologist, usually there's an understanding that we're mutually sharing this patient. There's also a lot in Maryland, maybe unique to this, but probably not. Um, there are some concerns about conflict of interest when it comes to dispensaries and providers. And so uh, there's this sense that they have to take somewhat of an arm's length to make sure that they don't go astray um, from these guidelines from the various different states. So for example, uh, again, my office is in the same building as the medical dispensary, that's how I got started. Initially, I was leaving some of my cards down there just in case people need a certifying provider. Well, the dispensary actually got fined for leaving my cards because there was a concern that they were promoting my business in turn for referrals. And a lot of people are concerned about unnecessary referrals that people that, that they're worried. The concern is that non-medical users will use medical cannabis. So, it, it, the, the, so ideally, you would have a conversation between the patient and the certifying provider and the dispensary, and they would work as a team. But some of the logistics, privacy issues, uh, legislation, concerns about conflict of interest has muddied that a little bit. So it's not like that. What I do, what I will do on occasion, um, I will talk to you know some of the bud tenders uh, about a specific patient if there's an issue. So I've done that on occasion. Uh, the other thing, because I have the luxury of having a dispensary in my building, for certain patients who need extra help, if I have time, I've actually gone to the dispensary with the patient. Again, that's not for every patient, so I want to make very clear that's it. But uh, certain patients, older patients who may need some additional help, uh, if I have time, uh, again, because I don't have 25 patients that I see a day, uh, for certain patients who need that extra help, I'll actually go down to the dis- dispensary with the patient to try to sort of work with the blood tender uh, to get a specific regimen. And that's been very, very helpful when we're allowed to do that. Now during the pandemic, you know, it's everything's sort of like, you know, like the restaurants where it's, you know, you order online and you pick it up. So I haven't done that for a while, but hopefully once the dispensaries open back up again, we'll be able to do that. Yeah, I hope so. And it just, what a ridiculous law to have in place. It seems absurd. I mean, could you imagine if you wrote a prescription for one of your patients for um, I don't know, Vicodin and, and they get to the, the CVS or Walgreens or whatever, and they say, you know what, I'm not that into Vicodin. Can I try Percocet instead? Right. Like, yeah, cool. Go for it. Like, that's crazy. And that's what's basically happening here. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Man, it's got to change. All right, so I'm going to change directions a little bit. I want to dive into some some history and and some of the things that that you go into. Probably, I imagine when you're trying to help patients understand what this medicine is about and the endocannabinoid system. And I saw that you stated it's 600 million years old is what we found. Yet the plant itself is only. 30 million years old. And we ourselves as humans are only 200 to 300,000 years old. I, I, could you take me through a little bit of this journey and how these things work? Right. So the thought process, so the, the, 
so the endocannabinoid system is something that we have innately in our bodies that has been around for hundreds of millions of years. And and while it is evolutionary, it is not like we adapted to the plant. So it has nothing to do, you know, it it was several hundred million years before the plant ever appeared. This system has been in place. It's part of our biology. And basically, we have lots of different systems in our body. We have the respiratory system that helps us breathe and the cardiovascular system that pumps blood and gets it to where it needs to go. The endocannabinoid system is a similar system. And what it does is it maintains what's called homeostasis. So homeostasis is what keeps our body in balance. So for example, temperature, you know, we're, we are warm blooded animals. We don't, you know, our temperature doesn't drop to 30 degrees when we go outside and it's 32 degrees. We maintain that temperature to keep everything functioning. And so there are a lot of regulatory processes that maintain temperature. The endocannabinoid system is one of them. So it basically tries to keep the body in balance. So it helps in regulation, things like temperature, appetite, sleep, pain, immune function. That's what it does. And basically, the system is primarily comprised of endocannabinoids. These are biologic molecules produced primarily in the brain. And there are receptors in both the brain, the nervous tissue, and the organs. And there are two receptors. There's a CD cannabinoid or CD1 receptor, which are primarily in brain and nervous tissue, and a CD2 receptor primarily in the blood tissues and organs. And the cannabinoids interact with those receptors and to produce different things, to regulate these things. Cannabis is a plant, and it has various different substances that interact with those receptors. The two main ones that people know about are THC and CBD. They interact with those receptors, and in the case of THC, mimic the body's natural endocannabinoids. So these are plant-based cannabinoids, or what we call phytocannabinoids. So they work, so they basically work with the body system. So a parallel example is, 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 is opioids. So similar to the endocannabinoid system, we have you know, receptors on our brain uh, where we have their opioid receptors. The body makes its own natural opioids. And so to help regulate things, primarily pain. And so there, are, there is a plant, the poppy seed plant, which you can make into substances, a plant-based opioid. And you know, it can be turned into heroin and used as a recreational drug, or it can be turned into medicine and used as a pain reliever. And so it's a very parallel process. And I think what happened was, is the opioids got sort of discovered, even though both have been used for centuries, research on the opioids preceded research on the cannabinoids by several decades. So that's why they're a lot more established and the cannabinoids are not. One of the central differences, and there are many differences between the opioids and the cannabinoids, while both affect the brain, the cannabinoids do not affect the brain stem. And the brain stem is what keeps you alive. It's what keeps you breathing. You know, so when they say, you know, if you ever heard the term brain dead, what does that mean? You're either dead or not. It means that the, 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 the part of your brain that, that keeps you alive, breathing and, and heart beating, that's working, but your brain that thinks, you know, that that's not working anymore. And so the cannabinoids do not affect that where the opioids do. And that's what makes them so much safer. The reason patients are dying from opioid overdose is if they take too much, it stops them breathing. That's essentially what opioid overdose is. It's basically the patient takes too much and they stop breathing. And so, and even if you're, even if you're taking your opioids as prescribed by a doctor, even at prescribed, it's very easy to overdose that and kill yourself. Whereas no one's ever died from cannabis because it doesn't hit that part of the brain, which controls breathing and heart rate and things like that. So it's a much safer alternative uh, for pain than the opioids. Yeah, this seems like there's a, a relationship between efficacy and safety, and cannabis seems to hold both of those in, in a very high place. Right, exactly. And so, um, as opposed to opioids, and I'm sure as a a prescribing clinician, you've probably seen a lot of different people come in with a lot of different issues. Have you have you seen very specific uh, cases where pain is resolved better with cannabis as opposed to opioids? Um, that's a good question. So better is better is a, is a tricky word because it depends on what you're defining as better. So if you know in in medicine when we do research studies, we we try to use what are called validated measures. 
So pain is so subjective. So often they'll use like pain scales, like on a scale of one to 10. And so if you look at the research that's currently available, again, very minimal, but it does exist. It does show that both are effective in reducing pain. It doesn't, there's no comparison that shows that cannabis is more effective uh, than the opioids in pain. And based on my experience, if they tried to do that study, it probably wouldn't be as effective because the opioids are really, really effective for pain. So I think if it was, if it was a competition or a comparison of a pain efficacy, I think the opioids would probably win. However, the opioids come with a lot of side effects. And uh, besides the really scary ones like death that we talked about, they're highly addictive. Um, they also, more than death, most people get some side effects. The primary ones are nausea and constipation. And the constipation, that might not sound, you know, to non-medical people, that might not sound like a very big deal. But the constipation caused by opioids can be very debilitating. Uh, and even life-threatening, it doesn't like constipation, you can't die from that. It, it can be very, very serious. And you can get a bowel perforation, you can die from that. Again, not very common, but I just, you know, the, the side effects from narcotics should not be minimized. And then you have the addiction uh, as well. So the reason why narcotics are addictive is because you develop tolerance. So five milligrams of oxycodone works fine, but then after a while you become tolerant to it. So then you need more. And so that is the problem with the opioids. Cannabinoids don't have that problem. Uh, so they don't cause constipation. They're not life-threatening. They're essentially non-addictive. And they also help with other things. So they help with anxiety. People who are in pain tend to have a lot of anxiety. So they help with that. They, don't, they help with nausea. They don't cause nausea. So if you're just comparing pain efficacy, and again, I'm not aware of a study that does that, uh, my suspect, I suspect cannabinoids would not be as good. So I don't think we'll ever get rid of the opioids. Like if you have a surgery or you're shot with a gun, you're probably going to want opioids. But for a short-term fix, for a long-term fix, and most people on opioids are for chronic pain, there's a lot of studies that show that the opioids are not great for chronic pain or cannabinoids may be much better in that particular uh, substance. So the, the research basically shows uh, that cannabinoids can lower the opioid dose and in some cases get patients off the opioids. And, you know, and they can also work synergistically and that's a safety thing too. So if I have you on hundred milligrams of an opioid, but I can drop that to 50 milligrams with a cannabinoid, uh, that's gonna reduce the opioid side effects, reduce the risk of death and, and things like that. So I, I don't see, I do see a role in helping with the opioid epidemic and hopefully in many cases replacing opioids. but um, but I think it's a combination. I think, I, I think we're going to, I don't, I don't think opioids, I think are very effective and have their place. I think they're overused primarily because we don't have any other, we didn't have any other options. And because they're so addictive, because we now have other options, specifically cannabis that works well in many cases and not addictive, hopefully that then limits the number of opioid prescriptions, which is why it needs to be federally legalized and at least, you know, medically legalized across the country. At the very least. At the very least. At the very least, yeah. And so in terms of pain, it seems that uh, higher THC strains of cannabis tend to be more effective towards pain. Um, but it seems also, speaking to some other psychiatrists, that you really want a higher CBD with it because of those anxiolytic effects that you were speaking to, to help take the edge off of because of the high THC. Um, and that's just my way of transitioning into the title of your book, which is Medical Marijuana and CBD. So two questions there. Why do you separate the two? And why did you choose to use the word marijuana as opposed to cannabis? Those are great questions. I'm glad you asked those two questions. Those are really good questions. So, so as we've been talking I've used the term cannabis primarily. And I prefer that term because that is the medical term for marijuana. So I tend to think of marijuana more in the recreational sense and cannabis in the medical sense. It's the same plant, okay? It's the same plant, but marijuana tends to be thought of recreational. Cannabis is the scientific term. As a doctor and as a clinician, I like to be scientific, okay? So, so that's why I prefer the term cannabis. However, a lot of people don't know what that means. They know what the term, you know, they say we want to legalize marijuana or, or medical marijuana is legal in my state. So while I, so I use that title in my book 
so that people who are interested in medical marijuana will know what I'm writing about. Because if I wrote medical cannabis, they might not know that I'm talking about marijuana. But I prefer the term in discussing the medicinal value of, of marijuana. I prefer the term cannabis because it's scientific. As far as the CBD, that's a, it's a more interesting question. So marijuana has multiple cannabinoids, not just THC and CBD. It has a lot, it has more than 100 different biologically active ingredients, including terpenes, which are very important to the various different strains and how they work. Um, in initially, when I started recommending various doses, I knew the importance of CBD, both as an um, anti, both as, as, as you said, sort of an anti-anxiety medicine, but also anti-inflammatory. So a lot of the patients who I see for chronic pain, a lot of it's sort of chronic pain from osteoarthritis. So back pain, had, you know, had bad back from arthritis, had surgery, still have pain. So I've got all this arthritis and inflammation. And CBD, while it's not as good as an analgesic or a pain medicine as THC, it's a very good anti-inflammatory. And the other thing that it does, in addition to being you know, anti-anxiety, it, it tends to minimize some of the side effects from the THC. So as far as sedation and sort of feeling high, it sort of tampers that down. So combining THC and CBD makes a lot of sense. So a lot of the regimens that I started with were, for example, tinctures where there would be high CBD, low THC. So like a five to one tincture or a 10 to one tincture or a 20 to one tincture. Um, and after doing this for a while, I realized that actually, if, if you wanted to go with more THC, if, that, if, if you were on a 10 to one tincture and you wanted to increase the dose of THC, you were probably getting more CBD than you needed. And while that wasn't very harmful, it was the cost of going up on that dose, you were, you were starting to pay a lot more money. So it made sense to, and because you can, and because CBD has really no side effects, you can dose CBD at a relatively high dose and don't have to adjust the dose. So when we adjust the dose, it's called titration. So the general principle of medical marijuana is, or medical cannabis, is you sort of start low and you go slowly up. What's nice about medical cannabis is you can often find that sweet spot where you get the desired effect, whether it's anti-anxiety, anti-pain, anti-nausea, you can get that effect without getting sedation or sleepiness, without feeling high. And so, because people don't want to be high during the day, they want to be able to work and do their thing. And so if you're careful and you start low and you go slow, you can usually, in most patients, achieve that dose. And so what I found was it was better to, to just start at a high dose of CBD and then get either, you know, high, you know, either one-to-ones or two-to-ones or just THC by itself and then, or a strain specific, and then just titrate the THC. So I found, so I switched early on from these, you know, two-to-one, excuse me, these 10-to-ones or five-to-ones to either one-to-ones, two-to-ones, or, or just the straight THC or straight strains with the CBD separately. And so what happened was, is you can get, and again, the different laws in different states are very, very different, but in Maryland, you can only sell in the dispensary products that are grown in that state. And currently we're not growing hemp-based CBD in the state of Maryland. So this, the dispensaries can only sell marijuana-based CBD. And even though it's the THC that makes you high, if you're trying to extract the CBD from, from, from cannabis, it actually is quite expensive. So to get sort of the 30, 25 to 30 milligram a day dose that I typically recommend, you know, in the dispensaries in my area, it was costing patients $250 to $300 a month just to get that separate CBD. So knowing that there was hemp-based CBD, I figured, you know, that um, that would be a better option to go with hemp-based CBD. And one of the things that I learned about hemp-based CBD is that it's not regulated by the FDA. And so that's the other reason why I separated the title. A lot of people see cannabis or marijuana as separate from CBD because CBD is advertised all over the place because hemp-based CBD is legal everywhere in the United States. It's being sold all over the place. It's being advertised on the internet. It's being sold at gas stations. It's being advertised at the radio. Everyone and their mother is selling CBD. And so people are very familiar with it. And one of the, one of the common questions I get is what's the difference? 
And so usually when people think of CBD, they're thinking about hemp-based CBD because that's what they're seeing in the market. And, you know, they see these radio, try CBD for this, try CBD for that. Um, they're starting to use it in foods. I think it was out in Arizona. I, I forgot the food chain, whether it was Arby's or Burger King. I think it was Burger King. They had like a C, you know, CBD burger or something like that. So it's become in the mainstream. And so the problem with it not being regulated by the FDA is that, number one, the chains won't sell it. You can't get good, high-quality, full-spectrum CBD at CBS or Walgreens or even the GNC because these big retailers don't want to touch this because it's not regulated by the FDA. So there are very few retail places that you can get it, and you have no idea what you're getting because, because anyone can take vegetable oil, pour it in a bottle, put a CBD label on it, and you don't know that there's no UPC symbol that says, you know, this is good quality. And so, so because of that, I decided to, you know, label that separately in the book and have a separate chapter or section devoted just to CBD, its uses with cannabis as well as independent from cannabis, as well as more details about the importance of getting good high quality CBD and where you might be able to find that, what to look for, because unfortunately, there's a lot of junk out there. What's nice about medical cannabis versus recreational cannabis used medicinally, which I know that it is, is at least with medicinal cannabis, it's highly regulated. So unfortunately that adds to the cost, but then you you know exactly what you're getting. You know the strain, you know where it's grown from, you know there's no pesticides, you know the milligrams. So that if I'm offering or recommending tinctures or edibles or anything, I can tell start with this milligrams and titrate up. Uh, it's a little harder to do with sort of even recreational cannabis because it's not as highly regulated. And so this, the medical the medical grade CBD can be found in the dispensaries. It's just really, really expensive. So, so what I do is I, I recommend to patients to use high quality third party verified, you know, independently certified, you know, you know, full spectrum hemp based CBD and mention sort of how to find that. Right. Yeah. If you can't find easy access to their lab results on their website or through a QR code. That's exactly, that's the criteria. If the, if you can't see the results on their website, it's not good. That's exactly mess right. with it. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed the QR codes that come on a lot of packaging too. It's like, that's here, great. That, I you love buy that. this, go find out perfect. yourself right now. Yeah. It's perfect. So uh, speaking of different cannabinoids, uh, one of them that I wanted to talk to you about is CBG, CBGA as this parent cannabinoid. I wonder if you could dive into the science behind that a little bit. So you mentioned sort of parent cannabinoid. And so, you know, basically CBG is, and I can't remember exactly how to say this, cannabigurol or something like that. It's sort of the parent uh, cannabinoid um, that all the cannabinoids, THC, you know, CBD, CBN, all these other cannabinoids, that you start with this one molecule and then it's converted into these other molecules. You also mentioned the A, which means sort of the acidified version. Um, and, you know, and there's a THCA and a CBDA and they all have, and they have different properties from their unacidified version. So it's important to sort of know all about that. Um, CBG is interesting um, because like CBD, it does not have psychoactive properties. So people are very interested in getting all the benefits of the cannabinoids without some of the psychoactive properties um, because people want to be able to take their medicines without having to go to sleep or being able to work or being able to drive. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in can, can we use other cannabinoids like CBD uh, and CBG has a lot of interest. Now, unfortunately, because of the federal laws and because of the lack of research dollars, uh, especially in hemp-based CBD, because again, it's not regulated yet by the FDA, but will likely be regulated by a supplement. And just like we have very little research into vitamins, you know, and things like that, um, there's probably going to be very little research in hemp-based CBD uh, or hemp-based products. Uh, we just don't know a lot, but there's some very, there's interest in CBG uh, because it seems to have some maybe slightly different properties than CBD, uh, but yet doesn't have the psychoactivity. There's, you know, a lot of the companies that are producing uh, hemp-based CBD specifically are starting to try to come up with some of these other cannabinoids. Um, the, and they tend to be a little bit more expensive. So the research isn't quite there yet. So I'm not specifically recommending these other things just yet. Um, uh, I, you know, 
but hopefully there'll be more studies that come out that we know. So it's very interesting. There's just not enough yet. There's well, again, while there's a paucity data of CBD by itself, there's at least enough data where I can, you know, can, you know, convincingly recommend CBD either with, with, with uh, cannabis or just the hemp-based CBD by itself for certain conditions. Hopefully we'll see the research with CBD. Certainly, you know, if it's, it's, if, if you have the availability to use it, from one of these high quality reputable companies that you know what's in it, you know, and you've read something that it might help with this, it would certainly wouldn't hurt to take. So, but, but we, you know, there, I, you know, if I, I don't have a specific say, well, if you have migraines, try CBG first, cause it might do better. I'm not, we're not there yet, but it's definitely, it's out there. And, you know, it's certainly an option uh, either in combination with CBD or by itself. So I'm interested in it uh, and hopefully we'll have, you know, more experience with it and we'll see. Yeah, hopefully. And I know as a cultivator myself, it's a cultivator's dream to have CBG being the the new hot cannabinoid because you can harvest early. And that's the best way to get higher amounts of CBG because it's not it's not just um, converted into the other cannabinoids. So it's promising. And I, I too, am looking forward to seeing more data out there. And my guess is, and again, a lot of the um a lot of the information about cannabis and CBD, while there is research, a lot of it is predated by anecdotal findings. So I suspect that as more you know, quality CBG comes into the market, we might hear of certain patient types that tend to benefit it from it more, and then that leads to research. So for example, I mentioned migraines. So if I have a bunch of migraine patients who tell me, you know, Dr. Mintz, you told me that the CBD would help prevent the migraines. It didn't really do that much. But I, when I switched to CBG, well, that really helped prevent migraines. Again, I'm not saying that that's, there's studies on that, but that might be an example of something that we might see that we can then study. So I'm, I'm looking forward to as much as you to see sort of what happens. And hopefully there'll be some research. Yeah, definitely. And so something you mentioned was the the non-psychoactive effects. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. And if CBD has a great effect for things like anxiety, doesn't that make it psychoactive? Okay, so good. that's a good question. So the question is, what do you mean by psychoactivity? So, so, so yes, if it is helping with anxiety, it's helping the psyche and therefore, you know, that could be considered psychoactive. So when I say psychoactive, what I, what I primarily mean is, is really about impairment. It's about, you know, so it's really about making you sleepy, making you high, you know, making it something that you can't function as a normal adult. Okay. And, you know, and, you know, you know, alcohol has psychoactive properties. So that's primarily what we mean by psychoactive effects is, is changing your perceptions to the fact that you can't, you know, you, you know, and again, it's not necessarily bad. I mean, psychoactivity can be euphoric and euphoria is not a bad thing, but you know, you, you don't, if you're euphoric, you may not be able to, you know, you might make some decisions that you would later regret. So, you know, it's really about, is this going to impair your impair your judgment, impair your reaction time, um, you know, sedate you? So that's what we mean by psychoactive effects. Uh, whereas, you know, so what I so so CBD's effect on reducing anxiety, I would the medical term I would use would be anxiolytic effects. So you can be anxiolytic without being psychoactive. Right. Gotcha. Thank you. As, as someone working in this space and trying to be. Uh, very conscientious of the different stigmas around it. Obviously, I call my show The Edge of Cannabis Medicine, specifically using the word cannabis, not marijuana. And I also want to have the best uh, scientific lexicon behind me. And so I've, I've tended to use maybe psychotropic as a term that feels more accurate as to what the highs would, are. Okay. Psychotropic yeah. would, be, would, be, would be fine. Yeah, or, or intoxicating or anything along those lines. And just because, uh, yeah, I mean, SSRIs are are they're psychoactive right i, mean, I guess well so, they, an ssri wouldn't be considered a psychoactive medication it wouldn't okay yeah. well because for that reason because it doesn't ssris do not generally cause sedation they don't generally cause impairment whereas um benadryl antihistamines can be psychoactive so even though they're totally legal and you can buy them in cvs you know if you look at you know so allegra for example, fexofenadine is the generic name, is a popular non-sedating antihistamine. 
Okay, people, a lot of people have allergies. They take Allegra, Claritin, or Zyrtec. If you look at the number one side effect for antihistamines, it's sedation. So people are taking antihistamines all the time. They may or may not be sedated, and they're driving with it totally legal, but maybe they shouldn't be driving with it because it can have some psychoactive effects. Uh, you know, the, the, the SSRIs and other medications may have sedation as a side effect, but it's not the most common one. They're not, con con even though they're working on the psyche, they're not considered to be psychoactive. They can be anxiolytic or they can be antidepressants, but they're not considered psychoactive. Whereas other anxiety medicines like the benzodiazepines, Xanax and Valium, those are psychoactive because they can make you sleepy and things like that. Right. Okay. Thank you for that distinction. Appreciate it. And that brings up a really interesting point too. Some of these over-the-counter drugs that like Benadryl, like these allergy medicines that do have these sedating effects, that have effects that aren't that dissimilar to higher content THC cannabis. Just not, not necessarily as a clinician, but as a person involved with this What's that about, really? Why, why are these things okay while cannabis continues to carry this stigma? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, if, if a lot of it goes back to the sort of the history of cannabis and specifically the history of cannabis in our country. Um, and so back and I'm not a history buff, so just bear with me if I get the dates wrong. But, you know, you go back to prohibition in the 1920s or so, you know, people were worried about people were drinking too much alcohol and that was a bad thing and it was sinful. And so we had prohibition and we know what that led to and that's why it was repealed. Um, but that thought process, you know, you know, which is still to some degree here today, was definitely there back in the day. Back in the early 1900s, THC cannabinoids were in elixirs and tonics made by reputable drug companies like Park Davis in the early 1900s that you could go to the Walgreens or CVS of the time and purchase these products without a prescription and use them quite effectively. And so they were main, so, so, so THC was a mainstream, cannabis was a mainstream medicine back in the early 1900s in the United States. It was accepted. But some of these folks, you know, who, you know, who are the ones who, you know, got prohibition going were, you know, concerned about marijuana. And, you know, they've made this film Reefer Madness, which people look at now and laugh at. But that was a very serious propaganda film back in the day. And so what happened was in 1937, they passed the, the Marijuana Tax Act, which basically taxed to high heaven all products containing marijuana. And it became... Financially, you know, it wasn't something that these companies could produce. So that's why cannabis fell out of favor is because, you know, politically, you know, people with that sort of, you know, Puritan philosophy, you know, this stigma about cannabis, which was back then, sort of put it there. And, and even today, you know, when the Controlled Substances Act was passed in 1970 or 1971, um, you know, the, there was a commission at the time that looked at this and they reviewed the data and by schedule one, meaning it's, it's, it's federally illegal. Uh, the definition of schedule one, it has no medicinal benefits and it's highly addictive. Both are completely the opposite. And the research even back in the seventies showed that, but it was a political decision. It was by the FDA and the then Republican president, Richard Nixon, you know, who was a little concerned about some of the anti-war protesters who were very pro-cannabis at the time said, no, we're going to keep it as a Schedule One drug, and it remains to this day. So there are a lot of historical reasons why it has that stigma. Um, but, you know, you know, but you could look at things like just something like alcohol, for example. You know, we don't think about alcohol toxicity, okay? But alcohol can kill you. I mean, you, normally people, you know, if they take too much alcohol, you know, they pass out or they throw up or they get sick or they just stop drinking. Um, we don't tend to think about alcohol toxicity, but, you know, you hear these stories about college kids getting hazed and drinking too much alcohol too quickly that the liver or the body can't metabolize and they die. You can die from alcohol poisoning. Um, you can't die from cannabis. Can't, no one's died from cannabis. You can't. You you can get very high or very sleepy or very sick or very paranoid, but you're not going to die from too much cannabis. So it is very safe. So the other thing that's very interesting about cannabis is that in states that legalized um, medical cannabis, they were concerned about traffic fatalities. 
Um, you know, would people be smoking and getting high and that would cause more accidents? And what you saw both in those states and surrounding states, and this is published research, that initially there was a slight bump, but then it went down. And so in states that have legalized medical cannabis, traffic accidents tended to go down. And the question is, why would that be? And one of the theories is that people were switching from alcohol to cannabis. And one of the differences between alcohol and cannabis in general, not, you know, is that while both are impairing, alcohol tends to impair your judgment more than cannabis does. Meaning when you're, when you're drunk, you don't often know that you're drunk, but when you're high, you usually know that you're high and can make the decision not to drive. So one can make an argument, why are we, you know, ever, and again, I enjoy a good beer as anybody else does. So I'm not, but, but, you know, why, why are we, you know, advertising on national television during football games and, you know, the Budweiser Christmas commercial, like why is there alcohol is so readily available? And again, I'm not saying that we should stop that, but you could make an argument that, you know, even for recreational use, and again, I'm not trying to make political statements either way, um, but there's a safety factor there that, that cannabis is probably safer than alcohol. The medicinal example that I use is, you know, for pain. Again, one of the most common things I see for pain, you can get Advil and Aleve over the counter. And again, I'm not saying don't use Advil or Aleve, uh, but it can cause some serious side effects. People die from aspirin and Advil and Aleve. It can cause bleeding ulcers that you can die from. It can cause strokes that you can die from. It can wreck your kidneys. Uh, the, the, the leading cause of, of liver failure uh, in our country is alcohol, but the second leading cause is Tylenol because you can get Tylenol toxicity. So I'm, again, not saying stop taking Tylenol, stop taking Advil because in low doses, it's probably very safe, but you can make a compelling argument that it is much safer to use cannabis for your arthritis in your joints than it is to use Tylenol or Advil, which is readily available over the counter. Again, not saying don't let's not have beer, not saying stop taking Advil, but you know, I think, you know, for, if you, from a clear scientific and medical standpoint, uh, I, I think cannabis, you know, there's a strong argument that there should be less of this stigma and less of these regulations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I read that there was somewhere around it varies year to year, obviously, but around 10,000 people a year die from ibuprofen or acetaminophen. Yeah, it's not nothing. It's, 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 it's not nothing. Yeah, just because you can get it over the counter does not mean that it's safe. Right. And exactly zero people have died from cannabis. Right, yeah. And again, exactly, that's true. And again, a lot of the medicines that are over the counter today are over the counter because they're historically been available. And so once something is approved by the FDA, it's a, it's, you, have to, it, you have to prove that it's going to kill someone before you take it off the market, as opposed to, so for example, you know, if, if ibuprofen were approved, you know, ibuprofen were available today, maybe it wouldn't even get approved. Or, or if it were approved, it may not be approved as an over-the-counter medication based on today's standards. Since it's already over-the-counter, you would have to, there'd have to be a, a even, you know, a huge, and again, I, I, ibuprofen is fine. If you take it in low doses as recommended, I'm not trying to scare anyone to stop taking their Tylenol or ibuprofen, but if you go, just like there's nothing, there's no medicine that's completely safe and completely effective. It just doesn't exist. There's just no medicine that's completely safe, including cannabis. I mean, cannabis does have interactions. It's, nothing is completely safe and nothing is completely effective, but you have to sort of balance those things. Yeah, of course. That's really great advice. I don't want to be conscious of your time here, but I have one last question I'd like to ask, ask everybody. And that is, if you could see one change within the medical cannabis industry, what would that change be? Ooh, so, uh, so I'll just, I'll give you sort of, I'll, I'll answer it more broadly. So I think, you know, what's the reality? What's, how is this going to play out in the United States? And so I think the thing that I would see most likely to affect this is the federal legalization of medical cannabis. And I think that that is going to happen relatively shortly. Um, regard, you know, you know, regardless of who's in Congress, who's in Senate, who's even in the White House, um, this is, there's bipartisan support for the federal legalization of cannabis. Um, so I think that this happens at a federal level. That doesn't mean that you can use you know, medical cannabis in Texas. It just means that if you're having medical cannabis in Maryland and you fly to Texas, you're not gonna be arrested 
you know, the second that you arrive, um, you know, they're not going to take your medicine away from you when you arrive in Texas. So I think it'll still be regulated by the states, you know, and there's a whole, you know, and I think recreational cannabis will, it won't be like uh, Canada, for example, where so there's a blanket, anyone can use it for any reason. I don't see that happening, but I do see that it becoming federally legal, you know, that it changing from a schedule one to a schedule two drug and that you be able to go across state lines. And that, in my opinion, will change everything because once you drop that barrier, number one, the main thing is you have the research, you have the scientific studies that then get the medical community on board. One of the reasons the medical community is not on board, well, I mean, there's a few reasons. There's the stigma, there's liability concerns. But at the end of the day, while there is research, it's not as robust as it is for, you know, medicines we use for cholesterol and diabetes. And again, there's big pharma support for that. And that's why we have those studies. Uh, but it's also, I mean, there's cancer research that's done by the government. You know, there's, there's definitely established ways to for therapeutics to get you know, adopted by the medical community. And we don't have that avenue really for cannabis because of the federal restriction. Once you remove that, then you have the research, then you have the buy-in from the medical community. That's where the ball gets rolling, at least from a medical standpoint. And, and that's what I see really changing. And that I think, you know, Again, like I said, I swore we started thinking. I was skeptical to start with. I did not go into this being a, I, I never thought in a million years I'd be a medical cannabis advocate. It was not something that I intended to do. But once I started doing this and I saw the benefit and the and the safety issue as well, I became an advocate for it because I see what a good option it is. Uh, and, and I tell my colleagues about this, but ultimately they're a little bit more skeptical. They don't see the results that I see. I mean, when you see patients every day, or actually really it's when they come back for, you know, advice or recertification for the next year, and they basically tell you it changed their life. I mean, you see it once, that's one thing. When you see it over and over and over again, you're like, wow, this stuff is really good. There's something to this. We don't have the exact science to be as precise as we'd like, but I know that it works and there's some research to back it up. When you get that sort of acceptable level of medical research that you know we in the scientific medical community like to see, that's when it becomes established. And then you'll go to your, you won't have to see a doctor like me to you know, get certified and to know exactly what to take. Hopefully, by then your regular doctor will say, "Oh, well, you know, you can't sleep. Let's let's put you on an edible before you go to bed. Here's the certification. Go down to the dispensary and get it." And I think that day is coming in the next five to ten years. Uh, but that first step is going to be changing the federal regulations so that we can do the research. Yeah, definitely. And you'd mentioned to schedule two. Now, there's already cannabinoid-based medicines that are FDA approved that are schedule three, why would you say schedule two as opposed to schedule three? Um, I, I, so basically schedule one is the cutoff for being legal versus illegal. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the below that depends on the risk and stuff like that. What's available now currently, you know, uh, you know, that is cannabinoid based. One is the CBD, uh, Epidiolex. It's, it's very specific to, uh, seizures. And because you know, from insurance reasons and whatever, I don't see that as sort of a mainstream. Oh, sorry about that. Sort of turned off both phones. Uh, uh, so I don't see that as being sort of mainstream. But but um, but synthetic THC, okay, uh, that has been available for for quite some time. Um, and what's interesting about that is that you know is that you know again this is it got approved in like 1986, primary dronabinol primarily for nausea, works a little bit, but it's not nearly as good as some of the other allopathic, other prescription medicines that we have. And so the question is, if THC, if cannabis is so good for nausea, why is dronabinol not as good? And the answer likely lies in the plant-based medicine aspect of the whole plant, that it's not just the THC, but it's the THC and the CBD and all the terpenes and the different strains. And there's something about the plant-based medicine and the way that all of those things interact with the receptor, it's called the entourage effect versus the synthetic. And so one of the reasons why the drug companies have not sort of, you know, gotten on board with this is because they have not been able to re reproduce, at least in this instance, what nature does better. And so that's the other thing that's very interesting with can cannabis as opposed to, you know, the opioids, which are derived from also from natural based things. They seem to work. The synthetics work is better, maybe even better with fewer side effects than natural based opioids. Whereas cannabis, natural cannabis tends to work a lot better than the synthetic versions. And that's also very interesting. And that sort of affects the availability as well. 
Yeah, it's going to be a really fascinating evolution to see how it plays out because of this plant-based situation. You know, the discrepancies within an individual plant as far as what levels of cannabinoids exist within the same plant is really wild. So it's a challenge and it's a hurdle that we'll have to jump over at some point. But I appreciate that you are seeing that happening in the next five to 10 years because I think it needs to happen. Yeah, hopefully sooner, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll definitely see. Well, Dr. Mintz, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. I know I learned a lot and uh, hopefully the audience does too. And have a beautiful rest of your day. You too. Thank you very much. Pleasure. So what'd you think? Please head over to wherever it is that you listen to your favorite podcasts, this one, The Edge of Cannabis Medicine, and leave a rating. Give me a review. Let me know what you think. Every time that you do that, more people can have access to this information. It helps to spread this info and knowledge and wisdom far and wide. And if you are a listener of this show, you know deep in your heart that this information is so important for more and more people to get a hold of. And please head over to Amazon and get yourself a copy of Dr. Mintz's book. It's called Medical Marijuana and CBD, A Physician's Guide for Patients. It will also provide you with a ton of useful information that you can use for yourself, your loved ones, anybody that you might think needs to know more about medical cannabis. Dr. Mintz's book is a great place to go along with this podcast, of course. So until next time, my friends, please stay healthy and enjoy yourself. This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020. All rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening.